For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. A quick disclaimer that, as always, our guests don't always agree with all of what End It For Good stands for, and we don't always agree with everything our guests believe or stand for. Um, We always like to remind people of that so that we can have a great discussion without having to agree on everything. And we want to bring great discussion to our listeners on these topics. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison, End It For Good is based in Mississippi, so we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, and to address drugs for a lot of Mississippians means that we have to address how Christians might currently approach these issues, and then help um, paint a vision for a better approach that helps people without being against biblical principles. So if we have to give up our values in order to support legalization, that's a pretty tough sell. So this has kind of become a personal mission for me, and it's why I started End It For Good. I really want to offer people opportunities to learn and to engage so they can see what I think is absolutely true once I really um, learned about the the issues and the causes and effects, which is that legalization um, and regulation of all drugs is in line with being, uh, for me, politically conservative, um, but with having a biblical worldview. So our guest today is Reverend Seth Still. He's a church planter in Cleveland, Mississippi, where he lives with his wife, Julie, and their three kids. He has served as the campus pastor for Reformed University Fellowship at um, Delta State University, which is in Mississippi, for a number of years. Uh, and now he is currently the lead teaching pastor for Crosstown Fellowship, which is a church plant there in Cleveland. He's a chaplain in the Air National Guard and is a combat veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. He's a lifelong Mississippian, born in Senatobia, went to Mississippi State University and got his Master's of Divinity um, from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So you live in Cleveland, which is in uh, the Mississippi Delta, which is our rich farming uh, area, and it's a pretty relatively small town. What's the best thing for you about living where you do? Well, we've lived here for 11 years, and it's a really small uh, community that has a university uh, right here in the heart of it. And so I've really enjoyed being a part of a a university town and also that I can ride my bike anywhere. So it's, (laughs) uh, that's probably my favorite thing that, you know, also just the history of the Mississippi Delta and Cleveland being right in the heart of, uh, of the Delta. So there's, you know, people come from around the world every day here to, check out the blues trail and see the history. And so it's just a really neat place to live when you think about uh, folks coming from all over to, to be a part of the history here. So yeah, I've been for the most part have enjoyed living here. So how did you decide to become a pastor? Oh my gosh. Uh, I definitely, that was not part of the plan. I was uh, I was not a Christian uh, in college until until the end of my college career, and was definitely not planning on being a pastor. Uh, I was 
planning on partying in my fraternity, which I was pretty successful at. And uh, really just trying to find a, a job that made a lot of money. And ended up uh, becoming a Christian at the end of my college career. And really that's where I got into the work of racial reconciliation as well, which was not anywhere on my radar growing up. So really both of those things happened in college through through a college ministry called uh, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Which is what you were eventually became a campus pastor for. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, that's what led me to to Delta State to Cleveland. So, yeah, it that was not uh, not in the plans for me uh, in my own plans. But yeah, I ended up ended up becoming a pastor. It, it took me a while. I, I was after college. I was a baseball coach for two years at a school that was uh, at ninety eight percent black and. Uh, that uh, that was just another part of the story that kind of got me to, to where I am today. So how did you become kind of personally interested in how we approach drugs? How does this impact you? Where Where is your connection point for interest in this? Mainly just the, the amount of time that I've spent in the African-American community and uh, the friends that I've developed uh, in that community and just seeing the difference in even in the way I grew up and the friends that I had who uh, were arrested with even small amounts of marijuana and, and things like that. And the, the difference in treatment uh, in, in the community I grew up in versus the African-American community. And so being a pastor of, of a church that's pretty close to 50, 50 black and white, uh, that is, uh, that's always on our, our radar, just the injustice. And, uh, so I, I would say to put it, uh, put a point on it, probably the, the just injustice side of it is what, uh, what brought me in. Hmm. Now you read the book, Chasing the Scream, um, by Johan Hari, which is the book that I host book discussions on, uh, in different parts of the state. And, um, has just become a really of interest to uh, a lot of people. There's end it for good is now um, sent out about a thousand copies of chasing the scream to Mississippians who are interested in, in reading this, which people are just shocked that people in Mississippi are interested in this, but we really are. Um, So what did you find most compelling about the book? Well, I really, I really enjoyed the history, enjoyed the history of, uh, of the drug war in general and just comparing it to prohibition. Uh, I mean, one of those points was because my granddaddy was a bootlegger in Mississippi since mm-hmm. we were the last, uh, last state, I believe to, to legalize mm-hmm. whiskey. Uh, so he, he ran whiskey illegally, uh, in North Mississippi up until they opened their legal store. And I, I believe that was 67 that they opened it. Uh, And so I was really, just from a family perspective, interested uh, as he was telling the the history and kind of comparing it to Prohibition. Uh, But also, you know, as he got into uh, addiction in general and and talked about that a good bit and talked to so many stories of – of people who are addicts and, and how how our culture treats 
addicts that uh, that definitely impacted me, especially being a pastor where we were uh, trying our best to to keep the doors wide open for addicts and trying to treat them differently than our culture does and definitely than the criminal justice system does. So, yeah, there was, there was a lot in there that, uh, that appealed to me. And if you haven't read, um, chasing the screen, which a lot of people listening probably have not, it chronicles the war on drugs. So how did we even begin prohibiting drugs a hundred years ago? Um, if you're like me and knew nothing about drug prohibition, you just assumed, these drugs that we have currently illegal were just always that way, and it hasn't been that way. It's been a very that's a very new uh, phenomenon that we have tried criminalizing substances as a way to handle their um, potential harm. So the book kind of goes through what's the history of why we started doing that, and then what have the effects been of that, and then kind of what are some options for reform. And a big piece of that, like uh, you're talking about, Seth, is um, their the research behind you know how how much trauma affects um, a person's propensity to become addicted to a substance, to use drugs in the first place, and then to become addicted um, if they use drugs. And so we've really kind of totally misunderstood what's actually driving um, a lot of drug use and addiction. This kind of looking for a solution as opposed to, you know, we, we kind of culturally have this understanding that the drugs are the big problem. And in reality, the drugs are a, are a solution attempt for other problems, other things going on in people's lives um, that they're trying to, to find some escape for. Um, so how do you see the intersection of the church and issues like the war on drugs. This is going to be really hard because especially in churches that are diverse uh, politically, which the church I go to is, um, we don't all agree on what is unjust or what policies are causing uh, oppression. So some people, so if you have, you know, the, the group of people who come to uh, the book discussion, the last one in Jackson, there was about 40 people there. So if you, you know, if I pulled the room and, took another topic that not the war on drugs, but, you know, I don't know, school choice or something like that. You would have, you know, half the room probably is going to say, you know, school choice is oppressive and half the room is going to say, you know, not having school choice is oppressive. So how does how how do you see kind of the intersection of what um, of how the church approaches issues like this that are kind of policy driven um, that people are going to have very different political ideas on? How do you see that? Well, I think that's one of the places where the church can does help heal a culture, uh, especially when you have a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church that brings people together who normally are not together. And so I, I think just like you're doing with these conversations, uh, in a lot of ways, that that is what our church is trying to do Uh Every week, you know, week in and week out, we're trying to bring people together who normally would never be together and then getting them to uh, to listen to each other. And so I think a lot of that change happens as people uh, get to know each other and value each other, even when they disagree. And so, we, you know, we want to say that we've uh, seen that on a grand scale, but in some really small ways, we've seen people. Who, who are very different, you know, people who uh, who would 
who voted very differently in our our last uh, presidential election who will actually listen to each other and, 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 mm-hmm. and in some ways uh, in some ways enjoy each other's company and and I think that when that happens then we can begin to talk about these issues in ways that will actually change things. Yeah, I think that's uh, so much of what people say that they enjoy about the book discussions is because we have so little space now where we are having respectful, honest, open dialogue about issues that can be really divisive. And certainly drug policy is one of those because people have tend to have a very visceral reaction to it. You know, if they have experienced addiction in their family or um, mm-hmm. something like that. There's, you know, and all of our messaging as a culture around the war on drugs has been very fear driven. So people kind of have this automatic response um, when they hear, you know, anything about it um, that kind of shuts down dialogue as opposed to saying, no, this, we need to be, we need to be talking about this. You know, there, I'm, I'm, there's people in my church that agree with me and there's people in my church that that don't (laughs) that think it's nuts you know what there was a lady from my church that came to one of the book discussions and she said we go around the room everybody gets one minute to you know introduce themselves and give kind of their initial thoughts and she said yeah I read one of the articles you wrote in the newspaper and I thought I don't agree with anything she said (laughs) (laughs) and I loved it that she came and I loved it that she said that because to me that's such what we need we need to be able to say I disagree, but I'm here. I'm I'm engaging, you know, and and I'm going to share my perspective, and I want to hear your perspective. Um, and and I love that about being able to find places where we can do that instead of just kind of you know lobbing grenades at each other, or at it's not really at each other; it's at each other's groups, you know, whatever that right. you know that we lump people, give them a label, and then start you know spewing all the things we think they're wrong about. Um, so the defining mark of the Christian faith is that we've all done wrong and that only through God's mercy and grace can we be forgiven. We can't do anything to earn our uh, being made right with God. But it seems like through the years that um, many Christians here in America certainly have taken kind of a very different approach when it comes to criminal justice. So Wyatt Emmerich, who is a um, he owns a, the newspaper that's local to where I live. Um, and has in, been involved in um, Mississippi publishing for years and years and years, just did an editorial where he likened our approach to criminal justice as an Old Testament approach, even though we as Christians live under New Testament grace. So he's not saying that we abolish the system entirely, but um, how can Christians think about justice that's maybe more helpful and perhaps more biblical? Um, so let's start there, just how... In turn, how does the Bible talk about justice? What is justice in in a in a biblical lens? Yeah, I think there's a number of things that we can do. Um, number one, I think realizing that uh, the Bible is written from a perspective of uh, of the poor and the uh, people who have experienced injustice. So I think, uh, you know, speaking somebody uh, who is, I'll just speak for myself, who has a lot of privilege and wealth and power, uh, it's pretty easy for me to misunderstand the Bible um, because I, I don't 
tend to understand that perspective unless I'm listening really well or I'm living very closely to people who have experienced a lot of injustice. Uh, I think the first thing I would say is for people like me who are listening uh, to this podcast, you, you've got to uh, listen to the people who, who are actually experiencing injustice uh, on a day-to-day basis and, uh, and not try to tell them what uh, injustice is. I think that's a, a big piece of it. I think the other thing is to, especially as churches, we've got to look at our churches and see, are are we attracting the people that Jesus attracted? Are, are the people who are most on the margins of society uh, coming, coming to where we are, or are we going to where they are? Uh, and does our kind of group that we're building look anything like uh, people who follow Jesus, or do we look more like people who really were against Jesus. And so I think uh, if, if we're following Jesus and our, our churches, our groups, whatever, our, our kind of tribe is looking like him, then it will look like people from the margins. And, and in a lot of ways, and like, like you said in the book, you know, no matter what you, no matter what policies you do, you're going to have a, a certain percentage of the population that's always addicted. And so, um, are we, do we have that, that percentage among our, our church or do, or do those people feel, uh, pushed away from our churches? So I think if we're going to embrace, uh, justice, then we've got to look out and say, Hey, what, see what God is doing in this world, making, making all things new. And are we a part of that? Are we just kind of carrying on? the the status quo. So I would say one of the biggest uh, kind of, I'm I'm guessing for people, this rising thought in them, which uh, is still something that I have to fight against, but was so prevalent and, and really took my whole, it was the whole way that I thought about justice um, was that, you know, people make bad decisions. And, you know, you, you, you're getting the bad decisions uh, that you made. So recently I was given a presentation and somebody said, um, you know, well, you know, this person's addiction came from, you know, their really traumatic, you know, childhood. So how, how can you, you know, blame them? And somebody else said, well, then it's their parents' fault. And, you know, it's their parents. So, you know, nope, there's no, there's no compassion really there for that because somebody somewhere is making a bad decision that you know ended up with uh with what they had so i can remember um the first time that i ever considered that that injustice could happen in the criminal justice system so i was visiting with a mentor just after i got married so this would i would have probably been you know maybe 22 or 23 um and she was interning. Um, she went back to school, got her master's, was interning at um, some place locally for social work. And they were working with a case where um, this uh, mentally um, uh, handicapped, I'm not sure what the correct term is for that currently, but um, boy had been accused of um, murder. So had been arrested for it. And she said, there's no evidence that he did this at all. Um, it, you know, and I just looked at her and it was like, 
you really think that could happen? Like that somebody could be arrested for something they didn't do or that there could be like something unjust like that happening? And I can remember the look on her face as she just looked at me like, are you really saying that? (laughs) That there could, but in my world, in my world, you know, we have laws and the laws are correctly enforced. And if everybody just follows the law, everything works out okay. And, you know, if, if, if something happens to you, you know, it's because of something that you did. So there's one piece of that that is, I think maybe we still, uh, a lot of us still struggle to really understand um, that that really can happen, that injustice really does happen and particularly happens to people who are not resourced, whether that's not necessarily monetarily resourced, but socially resourced. You know, if you don't have the the connections to know the judge who knows your dad, who, you know, says, well, you know, okay, this time I'll, I'll let him off if you make sure to, you know, you know, whatever. Um, And then this other part that is people's kind of uh, personal responsibility. And I loved, um, I watched this, uh, Tim Keller and Brian Stevenson were doing a presentation at, um, Redeemer Church in New York, and Tim Keller's piece on it about justice was, you know, um, you know, people say, well, you made a bad choice. And Tim Keller says, well, we've all made bad choices. <laughs> this is not right. unique to people who are, uh, whose lives have, have been significantly impacted by that. Um, but how do you think about that in terms of the, that's a, that's a common response here in Mississippi is, look, they made a bad decision. They got to live with the consequences. End of story. Yeah, I think that's really unfortunate, you know, that that people feel like that. And, you know, the, the thing you hear, do you did the crime, you did the time, mm-hmm. all the, the little uh, cliche sayings that I hear, I do hear a lot in Mississippi. Yeah, I think those are, are way out of line with the gospel. It, uh, I, think, I think the two parts of it there are, number one, you know, when the, the great— the two kind of great equalizers among us uh, is number one, we're all created in God's image. So that should equalize all of us with value and worth and dignity. But the second one is that we're all sinners. And so, yeah, you just, you know, I've seen, uh, I've seen people who seemingly had it all together uh, fall completely apart. So Mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, I think when you look out at humanity, you've got to, um, you have to be compassionate, and if you uh, if you're not, it's uh, it's probably because of something going on in you, a lot of pride, a lot of issues that you have in and of yourself. But I, I always think about what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, where he said, uh, you know, in the end, the way that he is going to judge people is by how they treated the last and the least. And so, you know, I think about that. I mean, he even mentioned. Uh, people who are in jail, people who um, who are definitely the last and the least in our culture, and however you treat those is how you treat him. And so, I think there's a lot to that for us to think through in Mississippi, especially because uh, we've historically been very hard on on people who have uh, committed crimes or even who've just been accused of committing crimes, uh, especially when that comes to drugs. And so being able to uh, show compassion there would be a big step for us here. 
so that what you're just talking about there of kind of being accused of crimes um, reminded me of kind of one of the ways I think maybe can help people um, understand the the different ways that people are you know treated kind of based on resources. So uh, this isn't just true in Mississippi, but it it is also true in Mississippi. So if somebody's arrested and um, they're given a a bail amount, and that's very, very common, even for nonviolent offenses, even for first-time offenses, um, for people to be given an amount that they have to post bail to get out of jail. Um, So we think, well, that's fine, you know, post bail. But the the difference is that if you're resourced, you can post bail and you won't lose your job and you're able to be at home and you can, you know, continue on with your life until your your court date comes or you take a, a plea deal. Uh, but if you're not resourced, if you don't have money, you're forced then to sit in jail. Our docket backlogs are so long. You can be in jail for months and months. Well, you know, you can't maintain a job through that. So you're going to lose your job if you're not able to work you're not able to pay for wherever you were living you're going to lose your housing if you can't pay for your housing or get somebody to get your stuff out you're going to lose your stuff when you're evicted from your housing because you're in jail Um, all this just kind of domino effect of like life destruction happens and it it's only happening to one of the two people who did the same thing so the Two people are both arrested for, you know, let's say first time heroin possession or something like that. Um, and and say they're set the same bail amount, but one who um, is has some you know money and savings is able to avoid this domino effect of life destruction. But as a culture, we often then look at both of those people and say, well, you know, see that 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 first guy, the guy who was resourced you know, look, it didn't destroy his life. He was able to keep going. And we, we we failed to see what actually played out, which is his resourceness allowed him to avoid that domino of life destruction um, that has happened. And in Mississippi, until this year, um, in the legislature, until this year, any kind of controlled substance violation resulted in an automatic, if you were convicted of it or took a plea deal, uh, pleading guilty for it um, was an automatic six month suspension of your driver's license. So, oh. in a rural state like Mississippi, we're the most rural state in the country. You have all of these people. We're also the third highest incarcerator of people in the country. So all of these people cycling through the criminal justice system, uh, a lot of them on drug charges. And if you take a plea, which 90 to 95 percent nationwide of all uh, arrest and prosecutions take a plea deal instead of going to um, court. So you have this super high plea deal rate, which means you're pleading guilty. And in Mississippi, if you plead guilty or are convicted of a drug crime, your license is automatically suspended for six months. Now you can't get to work. You know, it, it just creates this like massive life destroying force um, on people and but we don't see that it's hard for us to see that we really don't, we just see kind of the end result of it and tend to kind of just blame people. Well, look what happened to them uh, because of what they did. And we're not really seeing what's actually happening, which is very different things are happening to people based on um, 
you know, the amount of connectedness, social connectedness that they have, or the level of monetary connectedness they have. In some counties, um, you know, you can pay your way out of a first offense. So this is not related to bail. This is related to whether or not you're even prosecuted for it. So, if, you know, if you're first time possession offense or something like that, um, you know, the the local police department will say, well, you can you can pay $2,000 or something like that to have this thrown out or you can, you know, we'll prosecute you for it. Um, you know, on the, on the front end, people might say, and I would have said for most of my life, well, that's just two different ways of, of punishing somebody. Um, but that's radically different ways of punishing people. And, and basically what we're doing is saying, if you're resourced, you can just pay some money and go on with your life. If you're under-resourced, you know, this whole mechanism that destroys people's lives is going to come to bear, you know, on, on your life. So it, it has helped me so much to understand kind of um, the nuances of how different policies affect different people and then kind of the cyclical and systemic effect that that has on people's lives and on people's families and on future opportunity and you know all of those things that so that person who can afford the $2000 to 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 pay to get out of the first time offense um you know they're avoiding the criminal record so they're still employable they can go on to you know do whatever it is that they want to do whereas the other person who couldn't afford that and statistically is, has a high chance of taking a plea deal, of pleading guilty, um, you know, now they're shackled with this criminal record that for some people follows them for the rest of their lives and makes them permanently underemployed or or unemployed. Um, right. And I'm guessing that, you know, for you and your community, and especially with the work that you're trying to do, those you're seeing those kind of things play out, kind of the differences of how um, different policies affect different people's lives, depending on how resourced or, or whatnot they are. Yeah, we see that, uh, a lot. And I will say, I I think that I do appreciate the, uh, the lectures and the books and all those, but I, I don't think there's anything like, uh, actually putting somebody's, uh, face and name with this when you actually get to know the people who are affected like this uh, I think that changes changes you more than anything so I, you know it's hard to have these arguments and uh, and even discussions with people who don't have a, uh, a person's name or face involved when they think about these issues so if it's just mm-hmm. an issue uh, that doesn't that doesn't seem to affect. I know for me, it doesn't. It, at one time, it didn't affect me at all. Until mm-hmm. now, you know, I've, when I hear you talk about somebody having their license suspended or somebody who's lost their job, I, I know I can I can picture in my mind faces and names of people, and I know their kids, and I know uh, their extended family, and you, know, you just it it stops being just an issue then, and it becomes something that's very personal. And so I, I think for people who want to think uh, in different ways and maybe think more deeply about these issues, they've got to meet people uh, who have experienced these things and, uh, and vice versa. I think, I think the people who have experienced these things 
one of the ways that I, I, I've seen the church uh, be good news for the poor is when uh, you've, you, for a lot of our people, they're one, they're one mistake away from losing it all. They don't have hardly any safety net. And so the church is able to provide a, a much bigger safety net for people. And they have more options for when things like this do happen, especially uh, when injustice happens. The church is able to, to step in and be a safety net for them. So, and what are ways that you can see that people, that churches could um, continue to either begin to really um, intentionally try to enfold people either who've been incarcerated or people who are currently struggling with addiction or family members of people who are struggling with addiction? What are some ways, some kind of tangible ways that um, people and churches can enfold um, people with those experiences? Well, I think the first thing is just for it to even be on our radar uh, as as little C church members, uh, not not waiting on the big C church, the kind of institutional church mm-hmm. to to address that, but us as as members of the body of Christ, being more uh, more aware of that and saying, "Hey, we've got a uh, we really have a way to help uh, people who are." experiencing injustice in ways that the bigger systems uh, take so much longer to do that. And it's not, not that I don't think we should be pressing into those and that we don't need to be actively involved in, in politics. Of course we do, but there are ways we can do that immediately right now. And most of those are through relationships, uh, just developing, um, you know, not, not having the uh, Messiah complex and thinking, you're going to change the world, but even just one person or one family uh, that you can engage with, uh, especially if, if you're in a place where you do have some power, which uh, most of us um, probably have more power than we, we think we do. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So being able to, to take that power and use it in a, in a good way, um, you know, that can, you can do that immediately. You don't have to wait for your church leaders or go ask them if you for permission to do that, you know, you can do that today. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of room for the little C church and the, the big C church, uh, the institution. Um, I see some really good things happening in the big C church. It just take, takes a lot longer mm-hmm. for, uh, for her to respond. So. Yeah. One way I think for anybody listening to this, pretty much every county, in Mississippi as a county jail. Um, there was a young woman in our county jail who I was connected to, and um, she uh, called me while she was in jail. I went to go visit her one time uh, while she was there, and she said, we only have um, a play, a time to worship, a time to study um, God's Word every other week, but we don't have anybody to teach us in the off week. So there was one woman doing um, a Bible study at the, at the women's facility jail that she was at. And, but she could only come every other week. And she said, do you know anybody that could come and teach us? This is like the only time where we get this kind of um, opportunity. And, you know, she was in a cell with like 12 other women. And she said, there's just no, it's so difficult to read the Bible when you're in there. It's so loud and they're, you know, and, you know, and I just thought, 
I wonder how many other places there are and how many other men and women there are in just a county jail that that anybody like you're talking about little c church just a one christian on their own could go to their local jail and say hey i'd like to teach a bible study um and for this jail they had one person who was doing it twice a month but the women there were hungry to have somebody come can you please have somebody come um in the off week it's going to be probably tough to get through all the you know ropes and whatever you have to get background checked and whatnot um but to bring um, what those women wanted, an opportunity to study God's Word together, uh, is something that just one Christian on their own can do. Um, it doesn't need a whole church to develop a prison ministry to do that. One person on their own can go do that. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. This was um, fantastic. Yeah, glad to be with you all. If you want to connect with Seth, you can email him at sethstill at gmail.com. Or you can visit the website of the church that he leads. It is crosstownfellowship.online. That's crosstownfellowship.online. You can remember to subscribe to the End It For Good podcast if you haven't already so that you don't miss an episode. And you can also help us craft our episodes by sending questions, comments, or interview ideas to podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer, Let's save lives. Let's help improve life for all of us. Um, And we think the best way to do that is by shifting away from a criminal justice approach to drugs and shifting to evidence-based, health-centered approaches to drugs. Thanks for joining us. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.